Glad that you're here. We're finishing up a series this morning called Epic Fail, um, and I think you're here on the perfect morning uh, as we celebrate the epic victory of Jesus, the epic fail of Satan. While back, uh, uh, an employer had a, a new employee at the office. Uh, he said, hey, son, do you believe in life after death? And the young man said, yeah. And the employer said, well, that's, that's good. Because yesterday when you took off to go to your grandma's funeral, she ended up coming by to say hi. So, so that all works out, you know. Well, today is the day when Christians all over the world celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When we proclaim that we believe in life after death and we have a reason to believe. It's not just wishful thinking. Jesus Christ was killed and on the third day he was resurrected from the dead. And that's what we proclaim today. As I was growing up in the southwest corner of Missouri... As a small boy, I went to Central Elementary School. Um, I didn't particularly like school. Some of you may identify with that. I did not want to go to school, but like all children, I went to school because mom and dad made me. Um, also, I could see some benefit to my mom from me going to school because I was quite a handful around the house. I, I mean, really, 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 I broke and destroyed a lot of stuff and made lots of messes. There are lots of stories around the dad's house about all the damage I did growing up. And so she needed, you know, a few hours of relief every day. So, th so that made some sense as well. Um, one thing I remember about going to school... Um, were the emergency drills that we had. I mean, maybe you remember those two while you were in school. Um, these were kind of an annual event, or, or I think twice a school year we did these. There was the, the tornado drill. Um, there was the, also the second drill was the nuclear attack drill. Did, did any of you all have the nuclear attack drill when you were going to school? You did, see? You grew up in the 70s, didn't you? Um, the tornado drill makes a whole lot of sense in southwest Missouri. We were right in the middle of Tornado Alley, and so it really made sense for the school to be ready for that um, unfortunate event if it were to happen. And so the drill itself was pretty pretty sensible as well. I mean, we would all leave our classrooms, go to the central hallway, the safest place in the school. You would get down on your knees, and you'd put your hands over your head to protect yourself from falling debris. You remember how that went. Um, it all made a lot of sense. I will tell you this, though. The other drill, the nuclear attack drill, always confused me a little bit. Um, but it did remind me, and I think it reminded all the kids, we didn't watch the news, we didn't know that much about what was going on in world affairs, but we were reminded twice a year that there was a Cold War going on. We were reminded that America had an enemy, the USSR, the Soviet Union, and they were armed with missiles, atomic missiles. And so we did this drill um, a couple of times each school year. That, but there were things that confused me about it. I mean, first of all, it confused me, or I never quite understood what it was about Neosho, Missouri, and the Ozarks that would attract a nuclear attack by the Soviet Union. Perhaps it was our big Smith factory that made overalls. Or perhaps it was 
this symbol of bourgeoisie, capitalist luxury, the Lazy Boy Factory. We made recliners in Neosho as well. I don't know, but I was always wondering, what is it about Neosho that has designated us as a place the Soviet Union would attack? Um, but the thing that really confused me about the drill, and, and you all may have done the exact same thing we did, there, this drill was a little bit different. We didn't go out into the hallway. Um, what we did when this drill happened was all the kids got down on their knees underneath their desk, right? And I'm thinking, um, wow, you know, a half inch of plywood is really going to protect me from a nuclear bomb. I mean, there was obviously something the adults were not telling us about these desks. They were something really special. So there were things I didn't understand about that or that confused me, but what it did remind me and everyone during those days was the fact that we had a very real, we had a very powerful enemy. The Bible, from the beginning pages to the final pages, tells us about a very real and a very powerful enemy who stands against every member of the human race, Satan. On Easter Sunday, we are reminded that the victory has been won by Jesus Christ over our enemy. In the beginning, in the beginning, this creator God makes the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, this God speaks and something appears out of nothing. Light. Water, planets, the land, animals, sea animals. God speaks and creation happens. Now, the Bible isn't particularly interested in giving us a primer on physics or biology in explaining to us the mechanics of how God made the creation. But what the Bible wants us to know is that there was a creator God who is behind all that we see. Now, the climax of the first chapter of the Bible is the creation of us, the creation of people. Because when it came to us, God did something different. God put his personal imprint on us. Um, he made us in his image. Genesis 1.26 says, Let us make human beings in our image to be like ourselves. They will reign. So as the creator finishes this world-making project, he makes human beings who would uniquely contain his divine imprint. And just as Father, Son, and Spirit govern, govern all of the universe... People were commissioned to govern this new created world that we call earth. God essentially gave us the keys to creation. Like, like a, a father would give to his 16-year-old daughter on her birthday the keys to a new car, God essentially in the book of Genesis hands to people the keys to creation, which I'm glad my daughter's not in the service because she's certainly not getting the keys to any car on her 16th birthday. But there is a time then after Adam and Eve are handed the keys to creation, after they are made in the image of God, there is a time where things go along swimmingly. 
Everything is working just great. Adam and Eve live in harmony with nature, with the environment, with the created, with the created world. They live in an intimate friendship with God, and they get along with each other just fine. Then the enemy of God appears in the form of a serpent, right? And in the middle of this paradise that God has created for people, Adam and Eve choose to assert their independence. They choose to surrender to the counsel of this serpent, Satan, and they choose to rebel against God. In essence, the man and woman chosen by God to reign, who had been given the keys to creation, choose to hand those keys over to Satan. And at that point, the rest of history has been lived out under a curse, right? The harmony of nature, uh, of mankind created in, uh, to live with God in intimacy is destroyed. Man and woman begin to live in hostility with each other. Um, Cain and Abel, certainly example of the hostility that existed even in the very first family. Um, the natural world also goes underneath the curse and is thrown into upheaval, and no corner of the universe is left untouched, undamaged by this curse. Before the curse, think about it in terms of what we saw on the news this week. Before the curse, there were no tornadoes. There were no tornado drills. There were no earthquakes. Um, there were no wars. There was no injustice in this world before the curse. Before the curse, there was this friendship between God and man. There was unbroken intimacy between Adam and Eve. Um, but the decision to sin, the decision to hand over the keys of the universe to Satan has fundamentally changed the basic DNA of the universe and has brought us into a damaged world, the one that we know, all right? And not only were Adam and Eve and the created world cursed, but also this adversary, this Satan was also cursed. You see, he was told right after the first sin entered the world, right after he rebelled against God, he was told, don't enjoy your victory too much because you stand doomed. At some point in time, there's this prophecy in Genesis chapter 3. At some point in time, a son of man, in other words, the offspring of man and woman, is going to crush your head under his heel. You may strike his heel, but he will crush your head. And so he is also cursed. Now, the destruction that was unleashed by our decision to rebel against God and give authority over to the devil fills the pages of history, essentially. And, and we've been talking about this as we've been working through the Epic Fail series. Basically, what we've been doing is we've been tracking with a number of, of Bible stories about men and women who chose, who chose to follow the way of the curse— and who chose to reject the way of God and reject common sense, and we've been looking at the consequence, consequences that they suffered as a result. And you don't have to read the Bible to read about the curse. Just watch the evening news, right? We live in a world that has been damaged. And anytime you 
see a story about child abuse, about sexual depravity, about a a man-made environmental disaster, or even just a natural disaster, this can be traced back to our enemy who was unleashed in the opening pages of the Bible. So whether it is an ancient or a modern story, these stories of pain and destruction always stem back to our adversary, Satan, and to Adam and Eve's story. So here's the bad news. Um, This isn't going to surprise any of us this morning. We live in a world where homes are torn apart by divorce. Probably a number of people here this morning have experienced the pain of that. We live in a world where priests are guilty of abusing children. We live in a world where politicians are regularly guilty of stealing from the taxpayers they've been elected to represent. We live in a world where religious fanatics in the name of God blow up airplanes. That is the world we live in today, the one that we know so well. And so while God's imprint still remains on the soul of each person, the fingerprints of Satan can be seen all around the created world. You see, God is a creator God. And what God creates is good. Every time in the book of Genesis, in chapter 1, when God makes something, the Bible says, and God saw it, and it was good. So God is this creator God that is making good things. He's creating these things out of of nothing. Satan, on the other hand, isn't a creator. He can't make anything new, but he is a destroyer. His first priority, Satan's first priority, is to attack, diminish, and destroy the pinnacle of God's creation. That would be us. His second priority is to distort and manipulate every good gift that God has given us and turn it into something destructive or addictive, right? So Satan doesn't invent things or create things, but he takes the things that God made that were intended to bless us and he turns them around where they end up hurting us. It can be food, it can be sex, it can be beauty, it can be friendship or relationship, you name it. If God made it for us to enjoy, you better believe the enemy is going to try to turn it into something that can hurt you, that can that can turn you into an addict, that can create a situation of hostility around you. The gifts that God made to bless us, the enemy transforms into things that diminish and enslave us. Now, for the good news, you came here on Easter, you didn't come here to hear bad news. Now, for the good news, here goes. Jesus, the Son of God, was born as a son of man right around the beginning of the first century. And this is the beginning of God's invasion plan to recapture what was lost 
when the fall occurred, when the curse entered the world, when we handed the keys of creation over to Satan. Jesus is God's one-man invasion army on planet Earth sent to recapture and restore the world to what God always intended it to be. So, listen to this. As Jesus talks about the plans that he has for you and I, and Jesus compares those to the plans which the enemy has for us. Jesus says this in John chapter 10, verse 10. Jesus says, the thief, that's Satan, comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. In your bulletin this morning, you have a sermon outline. Um, If you would, write this down this morning. The enemy's plan for us, ruin, all right? Satan's plan for you and I is to ruin the life and the gifts that God has for us. Um, Let me give you an example of how this, this works. So God created this really cool thing when he made not just Adam, but he made Adam and Eve when he made more than one person. God created this amazing gift called relationship, which is supposed to bring meaning and life and joy for us, all right? So God creates relationship. All of a sudden, Satan finds ways to diminish, destroy, and harm that gift with things like gossip, Hatred, hostility, prejudice, jealousy, envy. Um, you see how that works? You see how that works? All right. Last week, um, I saw a story about this new app that, that's on Facebook. Um, it's real. Um, you have been able for a long time to be able to friend people on Facebook. Those of you who do Facebook know that. Well, now there's a new app that allows you to enemy people on Facebook. Well, Facebook's no big deal, but, but let's talk about something that, that is, is a big deal. How about marriage? How about marriage? Um, few things, I believe, bring the enemy greater pleasure than wrecking a marriage. I mean, this is the relationship that is supposed to be the summit of human connection, Right? Um, You choose a man or woman who you enjoy being with, who you spend time with, who you share similar values to, who you are attracted to. You choose this person out of everyone that you've ever met, and then both of you decide to go all in. You wear jewelry symbolizing this relationship, right? You go before a priest or a preacher, and before God and man, you swear that above all other relationships that you have ever had or ever will have, This one is going to be the one that you devote yourselves to. You you swear before the, the judge or the preacher in the state of Texas or wherever you reside that you will go all in on this relationship. In fact, it's such a unique relationship that it is the only one that we actually get a certificate for. We make it legally binding. I mean, in every way imaginable, we say, of all the relationships I will ever have, I am going to devote vote myself to this one. Now you know why Satan loves to attack marriages. I mean, think about it. 
if he can wreck this relationship, um, he can do just about anything with this, can't he? If he can turn a husband and wife into mortal enemies, he's loving it. If he can get that couple who started at an altar to end up in divorce court, he is throwing a party. And with divorce rates around 50%, he is, he is having quite a party. I think you get the point. Um, it's bigger than marriage, but that's a good example of how Satan takes a good gift that God gives us, a most beautiful, precious, and even sacred gift, and he infects it with the curse. After all, as Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I'm not saying that we need to all get under the pews this morning, sound an alarm, and have an emergency drill. What I am saying is we have a very real and a very powerful enemy. All right? The next two things I want you to write down are are these. So we know the enemy has a plan to ruin us. Well, the plan that Jesus has for us that we saw in John 10.10 is to restore the fullness of the life God wants for us, to restore the fullness of the life God intends for us to have. This brings us to Easter Sunday. This is what Easter is all about. It is all about redemption from Satan's dominion and a return to the life God has for us. Easter is about reversing the curse. Here's the thing about Easter. This is what I love, and this is the good news this morning. As long as Satan stuck to attacking you and I, he was doing pretty well. I mean, to use military jargon, you and I, no offense, we are soft targets. But once Jesus was born into the world, and Satan chose to pick a fight with Jesus, Satan, quite frankly, picked the wrong fight. All right? I don't know if you've ever thought about it like this, but, but God became a human being. He became one of us. Jesus lived this remarkable life of love and service to others. Jesus basically showed us what it looks like to live a life outside of the curse, to live a life in the blessing of God. And when Jesus went around in the first century healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, even raising the dead, casting out demons, Jesus was in essence giving us glimpses of what the world could be like and one day would be like when the curse was removed. God in human form, God walking around with us as a son of man, Now, Satan, of course, couldn't resist this. Satan saw this as an enormous opportunity. God, vulnerable. God, wrapped in human flesh. So he attacked. As Jesus launches his ministry at 30 years of age, you remember the onslaught of temptations Satan uses to attack him. And then as Jesus gets into his ministry, Satan continues his attacks, and Satan uses a very interesting weapon to attack with. Satan uses religious people. 
In fact, he uses the religious leadership of the day. Now, I'm going to give him points for ingenuity here. Satan doesn't come after Jesus with Satan worshipers, with Satanists. Satan comes after the Son of God with religionists. As John opens his gospel in John chapter 1, verse 11, John says, He, Jesus, was in the world. He had come into the world. And though the world was made through him, echoes of Genesis here, though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. More explicitly, Luke lays out the method of attack that Satan uses. In Luke 19, verse 47, Every day he, Jesus, was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests and teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. So as the religious establishment turns against Jesus, Satan believes he's got Jesus on the ropes, right? And the culmination of the enemy's plan... Satan manages to get one of the inner circle, one of the 12, Judas Iscariot, we talked about him last week, to betray Jesus. Jesus is arrested, betrayed with a kiss by Judas, arrested, put on a sham trial at the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. And then he is sentenced to die in a public execution. And the culmination of this plan of Satan to kill God in human form, Jesus is hung on a cross with a hammer and nails. His body ends up being run through with a spear by a Roman soldier. The Son of of Man had not called an angelic army to his rescue. He had not used any of his divine power to comfort himself. As Satan throws everything he has at him, whippings, spitting, ridicule, rejection, betrayal, Jesus simply takes it. He takes everything the devil can throw at him. And then in a macabre boxing ring of Golgotha, Satan winds up and throws his last punch. The haymaker that kills the Son of God. Jesus dies. And this moment becomes the turning point of all of human history. You see, the victory is very short-lived by the enemy. The victory turns into Satan's epic fail. It becomes the Son of Man's moment of triumph, and ours for that matter. The great serpent has been crushed under the heel of the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. Three days later, Jesus, to complete the victory is physically resurrected from the dead. We who are believers think about Easter oftentimes in terms of what it does for us, you know, forgiveness of sins, the promise of eternal life, and those are good things to think about on Easter, yes. But the Easter story is much bigger than that. It has actually cosmic implications. The, the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus have implications that change the universe. Now, I don't know what you know about snakes. I hate snakes personally. But I know this, whether it's a little bitty garden snake or a big, huge python or something, if you crush that snake's head or if you cut that head off, guess what? The body's going to keep whipping around and writhing for quite a while. And so while Satan's head has been crushed, while he has been dealt a fatal wound, 
by the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. This doesn't mean he no longer has any power, any influence. You just read the newspaper. His doom is sealed. The victory has been won over Satan, but he continues to do damage in our world. But don't let that turn you away from the victory that was won. Paul tells the Colossians in Colossians 2, verse 15, that Jesus, I love this, Jesus disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. The writer of Hebrews proclaims that in Hebrews 2, 14 to 15, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil. Easter is Satan's epic fail. Remember back when we handed the keys to the devil in the Garden of Eden? Well, guess who's in control now? Jesus is sovereign once again. Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. This is from Eugene Peterson's translation called The Message. Jesus proclaims in this verse, I'm alive. I died, but I came to life, and now my life is now forever. See these keys in my hand? They open and lock death's doors. They open and lock hell's gates. You think Satan is in charge of hell? No. Mm -mm. The Son of Man holds the keys to all things. In the second act of the opera Faust, this young man named Valentine has this battle with Mephistopheles or, or the devil, right? They have swords and they're battling it out. At one point, their swords cross. And Valentine's sword breaks. And, and then right as Satan is about to, to run him through with Satan's sword, Valentine takes a knee. He turns that cross, I mean, that, he turns that sword that's broken upside down. It becomes in the form of a cross. And Satan is paralyzed and powerless. You see, faced with the cross, Satan is powerless. Now, very quickly, this is what we're going to do to wrap up this morning. I want to talk to you about living in the victory of Easter today, living in the victory of the risen Christ. This is on your outline this morning, three things, right? The first thing Easter asks you and I to do is to reach up. In faith, in faith, join your story to the resurrection story by becoming a baptized believer of Jesus Christ. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul tells us that baptism is the symbolic moment where you join your story to the Easter story. He says this, Having been buried with him in baptism, raised with him through your faith in the power of God, and raised with him from the dead. Now let's be very clear. Becoming a Christian or even being baptized, it's not about getting your ticket punched to heaven, all right? Baptism is an important marker along the way. It's an important step on your journey that you can look back to and you know who you belong to now. But baptism is only the beginning. 
of a new sort of life. What sort of life is that? It is a life where I move myself further and further into connection with God, friendship with God, and further and further away from the curse of the enemy. This is how James puts it in James chapter 4, verses 7 to 8. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. He'll go running. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. So reach up. Second thing is to reach in, to reach in. Actively join with others who follow Jesus by living and serving in the church. Now, church has, has become a negatively charged word these days, which is very unfortunate. Um, because in the New Testament, the church is the bride of Jesus, all right? The church is the body of Christ. That's why it's so important that we get down to Lancaster and do disaster relief or wherever there's human hurt, we become the hands and feet of Jesus. We, the church. Paul puts it like this in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 to 11. His intent, God's intent, was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. That means Satan and the demons, that they all know about God through the church according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Look, Preston Crest is the church of Christ. We are not perfect. We do not pretend to be perfect. But we are growing in the blessing of God. We are trying to help folks raise their children in the blessing of God. We're trying to help people honor and grow their marriage in the blessing of God. And we would love to have you join us on our journey. We'd love to have you become part of our family. Third thing this morning, as we finish out, you're going to reach up, you're going to reach in, but you're also going to reach out. Reach out into the world. This means I will live out the good news by joining Jesus and his church in loving, serving, and evangelizing. That just means sharing this good news, right? Loving, serving, and evangelizing in my community and beyond. This may mean big things, big ministries. This may mean small things that seem very small at the moment but have an impact. I mean, one of our members has this habit of when she goes through Starbucks, through the drive-thru, she pays for the person's order who's behind her, right? They never know who did it. They don't get to meet her. She just randomly does that in the name of Jesus. That's a small thing, but it can change somebody's outlook. It can change the way their day is going. Big things, small things, feeding the hungry, adopting an orphan, providing medical care for the poor, sharing your faith whenever you have an opportunity. Um, the implications of Easter, right? are so big and so small that we can't begin this morning to explore all of what it means. Um, but it obviously calls us, the church, to go back out in the world, not to huddle up together. This isn't church, right? This is a moment where we celebrate each week together, but it is a call for us to go back out. Jesus is no longer a one-man army. We have joined the family of God. And this week, God is going to drop your life into the world, into your home, into your neighborhood, into your workplace, into your school, and he is calling you to share his love and compassion with those around you.
So this morning, maybe for you, your Easter invitation is to be baptized, is to join your story with the resurrection story. Or maybe this morning the call that God has given you, the invitation He has given you, is to become an active member of His church. Maybe it's here at Preston Crest. Maybe not. I would encourage you, if you are not actively involved in a local church, to find a Bible-believing, Christ-honoring fellowship and to become active in that fellowship. By the way, um, active member of the church is really kind of kind of a crazy thing to say because an inactive member of the church is really not part of the church. I mean, it's like an inactive part of of the body. I mean, be part of the body of Christ. Plug in, reach in. This morning, finally, I want to invite you to reach out. More than just dropping a little money into a collection plate on Sunday morning, dropping your life into the world around you. We have been rescued from the dominion of darkness. We've been transported into the kingdom of the Son of God. And we are called to go back into the world on a rescue mission.